Good morning. The reading is from Matthew 6, verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they would be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the very word of God. Within the Sermon on the Mount itself, the Lord's Prayer is the literal center of the sermon. And at least for Matthew, this is clearly intentional. He has given us the Sermon on the Mount with the Lord's Prayer in the middle on purpose. Um, Because if you look at the Lord's Prayer that was just read to us uh, there, if you look at it, you will notice a couple things. One, it's not entirely out of place. I mean, just before the Lord's Prayer, we have uh, some instruction from our Lord about how we should pray, when we pray, we should pray in a certain way. We looked at that last week. So it's not entirely out of place. Verses five to six are about prayer. But Matthew signals the distinctiveness of the Lord's Prayer in several ways. Uh, one of, I just want to give one because there, there's a lot of things that we could notice, but, and we'll come back to this. You'll notice that in the previous section where he talks about acts of piety, uh, giving to charity, prayer, fasting, the comparison is made to the hypocrites. But in the Lord's Prayer, the comparison is made to the Gentiles. So there's a distinctive element that's here that, has, that Matthew is signaling as he puts the Lord's Prayer right in the middle, literally in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So in other words, Matthew wants us to see the Lord's Prayer as central to the Sermon on the Mount. If the Sermon on the Mount is what we've entitled it, a kingdom manifesto, a a way of describing what it is that is central to God's purposes for the world, then the Lord's Prayer is like a kingdom model of what the Christian life ought to look like, maybe even what it ought to sound like. We need the Lord's Prayer We learn to live on earth as citizens of God's kingdom in heaven by learning to pray in the form of the Lord's Prayer. Let me say that again. We learn to live on earth as citizens of God's kingdom in heaven by learning to pray in the form 
of the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is central. It's central to the Sermon on the Mount. It's central to how we're supposed to live as citizens of God's kingdom. The Lord's Prayer, in other words, shapes us. It molds us. It forms us into the kind of people that we're supposed to be as citizens of God's kingdom. And here this morning, I want us to look at how the Lord's Prayer shapes us as it instructs us particularly in these three ways. It teaches us about God's character, teaches us about God's mission, teaches us about God's expectations. God's character as our Father, the Lord's Prayer teaches us this. God's mission, what he wants for the world, and God's expectations for us as his people. God's character, God's mission, God's expectation. Let's look at it. So first, God's character. How we pray will be shaped, informed by how we think of God. What do you think God is like? Who is this God to whom we pray? Christian prayer ought to be distinguished by who God is. Who is this God to whom we pray? Now notice again, Jesus contrasts the prayers of his disciples with the prayers of the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, of course, refers to the nations who do not know the creator God. And here's how Jesus describes them and their prayers in verse seven. When you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus is critiquing, criticizing, something observable in the characteristic prayers of the nations in his day. The verb translated heap up empty phrases is meant to resemble the speech of someone who stammers. It's like someone saying a sound over and over again, like the repetition of a mantra. Add to this the criticism of using many words, and we get the picture that pagan praying, at least in Jesus' day, was characterized by wordiness and long-windedness. Now, when Jesus says, do not be like them, in verse 8, he is not intending to give us a time limit or a word count to Christian prayers. Jesus himself, you read through the Gospels, on a few occasions is said to have spent an entire night in prayer. The problem with pagan prayer is not its length. What makes Christian prayer different from all other forms of prayer is not necessarily how long we pray, how many words we use when we pray, but it's this, the perception of the character of the God to whom we pray. Now, I want you to note this important point then as we consider how we're supposed to pray. It matters how you're thinking about God. Who is this God to whom we pray? If you don't have the right idea of who the true God is, then your prayer 
will sound more like pagan prayer than Christian prayer. You say you're a Christian? Great. Don't pray like a pagan. Know the God to whom you speak when you pray. Two things in particular can be observed here. First, the God to whom we pray does not have to be invoked. We do not have to get his attention. We don't have to speak to him as if he's hard to reach, hard to get a hold of. We should not think of him as being far, far away. No, no. He is a father. He is your father. He is not far off. He is near, very near. Some Christians struggle with this point because, well, for different reasons. Perhaps you struggle to get this because your experience with your own father is an experience of someone far away, someone who did not care for you, someone who was not approachable, someone who was not near. But of course, this is not the way that Jesus wants us to think of God. He wants us to know this God, to think of this God when we approach him to pray as a father who is supremely good, accessible, eager, to hear your prayers. And even if you do not have negative emotions from thinking of God as Father, you may have the wrong perception when you think of him as your heavenly Father. Oh, there it is, heaven. Because for you, heaven in your mind is a place very far away, a long, long way away. If not in space, then at least in time. A place that you can only access truly when you die. But no, this is not the way that Jesus wants us to think of God. Don't be a pagan when you pray. The God to whom we pray does not have to be reached with many words. Did you see on the news this week, there was like a, a radio wave that took 8 billion years to get us, get to earth, just got here. Don't think of God like that. It doesn't take many words over a long period of time to reach him. It doesn't even necessitate creating the right setting, the right atmosphere, or the right mood. God is your Father, your Heavenly Father. And heaven, as we're going to see, is nearer than you think it is. And so we need to know that this is not a God that has to be invoked. You don't have to get his attention. Second, not only does God not have to be invoked as if he were far away, he also does not have to be informed as if he is unaware of what you need. See what Jesus says here? Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The contrast that Jesus is making here is not primarily about God's omniscience over against the pagan God's ignorance. The reason that pagans pray with empty phrases and many words is because they are uncertain about whether or not their God, their gods, will be good to them, will act in their favor. The pagans pray the way they do, Jesus says, because they believe that the gods to whom they pray are capricious. You never know when you approach them what their disposition will be. Are they smiling right now? 
Are they frowning? Jesus says that when we pray, we pray to a God who is our Father. He knows what we need, and his disposition, listen, his disposition is to say yes to you. He wants to answer your prayers. This is a God, the psalmist says, who holds no good thing back from his people. So, If there's any kind of preparation that we have to make before we pray, and notice that the Lord's Prayer comes to us in this structure, in this format. There's this introductory section, verses uh, 7 and 8 here that are, um, sorry, verses 8 and 9 that are given to us. 7 and 8, what is it? I'm not even looking at my Bible. Uh, 7 and 8, there's this introduction. If there's a preparation that we need to make when we come before the Lord to pray, this is it. You need to think about who this God is. He's not a God who's far away, who has to be invoked. He's not a God who has to be informed as if he's not predisposed to want to say yes to everything that you truly need. Jesus teaches us that God is near to us and that God is good to us. Pray then like this, Jesus says in verse nine as he begins to give us his model for prayer. Now notice second, that Christian prayer is distinguished not only by the God to whom we pray, but also by the mission that he has given to us. It is the mission of God and our role in that mission that informs the content of our prayers. You need to think rightly about who God is when you pray, but you need to think also rightly about what God is up to, what God is doing in the world, and your place in that mission. You see, we might ask that if God is so near, Ben, okay, if God is this near to us, this good to us, then fold your arms a little bit. Why would we even need to pray? Why pray at all? Prayer seems unnecessary if God is such a good father to us. But Jesus himself prayed to the father. Why would Jesus need to pray? Many have mocked Christian prayer, observing that if Jesus himself prayed to God, then (laughs) this is essentially God talking to himself. How ridiculous. Totally unnecessary. But prayer is not about telling God something he doesn't know. Prayer is not about making him aware of something that he didn't know that we needed. Prayer is about God's own invitation to us to share in his own Trinitarian divine life and to welcome us, to invite us in to his great saving mission in the world. So to the question, why pray, to the skeptic, we would have to say, why not pray? If the God to whom we pray is near, If the God to whom we pray is good, and if this God is inviting us into his own conversation, his own Trinitarian conversation about his great saving mission in the world, then prayer, or at least Christian prayer, is the greatest privilege in the world. Think of it. It's like being asked to be part of a team that sets out to make a real difference in the world. Imagine that you are asked to join a team that sees a problem 
knows how that problem can be solved, has all the funding necessary to do the work. Prayer then would be like the daily team meeting to coordinate the next steps that need to be taken to complete the mission. And you are invited to be a part of that team. You have an important role to play in fulfilling this mission. Do you understand the mission of God that he is inviting you through the Lord's prayer to get in on? Do you think of your life in these terms? The Lord's prayer keeps the mission front and center. Take a step back for a moment. I know we're familiar with it. We've already prayed it once. I'm gonna have us pray it again at the end of the message. I mean, what else do you, how else do you end a sermon on the Lord's prayer? But by praying the Lord's prayer, right? So we're gonna do it again. You're familiar with it, but take a step back for a moment and observe the Lord's prayer. There's two parts to it. Two sets of three, some would say seven, petitions. But here you have to notice that the transition comes between these two parts with a phrase at the end of verse 10. It's a really important phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's prayer is about earth and heaven, heaven and earth. It's about what we might call our vertical relationship, if that's a helpful way for you to think of it, with God in heaven. It's also about our horizontal relationship with our fellow human beings here on earth. And here's the thing. Throughout the Bible, and here we see it right in the center of the center, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, these two relationships are not isolated They are connected. They are meant to be connected. Heaven and earth are the two parts of God's one creation. And you need to think of it that way. Heaven and earth are not to be distinguished, set apart, way, way isolated, and never the two shall meet. They are supposed to be overlapping, connected. Things on earth are supposed to reflect the way things are in heaven. But of course, they're not. The mission of God then is to save the world so that the intended connection between heaven and earth is fully restored. Did you hear that? The mission of God is to see that heaven and earth are connected the way they were always meant to be so that what happens on earth reflects the realities of heaven. This is what you'll find in the Bible if you have eyes to see it. Even, let me just try to give you some eyes to see it. This is a simple way to do it. The first couple of chapters in Genesis, just read them and then Turn to the last couple of chapters in Revelation. You can't miss it. The Bible simply is not a message about how you can finally get out of this earth and go to be with God in heaven. 
That's just simply not what the Bible's about. It is about how God can come and be with us on earth. Get this straight, and the Lord's Prayer, as with so much else in the Bible, will begin to make a lot more sense. So look at it now. The first set of petitions tells us how things are in heaven and directs us to pray that God, please, make them also true then on earth. Here's the first one. Hallowed be your name. The word here, hallowed, means holy, dedicated, revered. This is how God's name is treated, thought of in heaven. Make it so then, Lord, on earth. Of course, the problem here is that God's name on earth is often not revered, but blasphemed. And the Old Testament tells us why. We should think about the problem the way the Bible tells us the problem. Here's, we studied this, Ezekiel 36. Let me read to you. Here, God tells us what the problem is, why his name is not hallowed on earth like it is in heaven. Here's what he says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. <gasps> Did you hear that? This is the entire expectation of the Old Testament, is that the day is going to come when God will act decisively, vindicating his name, which has been blasphemed, not by the pagans, but by his own people. The conviction then of the New Testament is that that decisive act of God has already taken place. In Jesus, God has done what Ezekiel 36 promised he would do. And the first petition is that God would keep us so united to Christ, so believing in Jesus as the great decisive act of God vindicating his name, that we who claim to be his people would be kept. Oh God, please, by your grace, keep us from doing anything that would cause the world to blaspheme God's name. The problem with God's name not being revered is not those pagans out there. The problem is us giving the nations reason to blaspheme his name. So please, God, let your name be hallowed among your people whom you have decisively saved and vindicated through Jesus of Nazareth. The second and third petitions I take together, your kingdom come, your will be done. They're similar, not quite identical. But notice, if you're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, you better know the kingdom of God and what this means. 
The kingdom of God in biblical terms, again, is the hope that God's people would flourish in the world under his reign, that God's society would be fully established on earth. Just as in the first petition, the problem here is not so much with the bad guys out there in the world. The problem is with those who call themselves the good guys, (laughs) those who call themselves the people of God. The emphasis here then is on those who claim to be the people of God. Or, again, as Christians, the problem here is usually with us and with us as his church. So long as we think that the whole mission of God is about saving souls and getting us out of this world as if it were a sinking ship, beyond being saved, we will not pray correctly. We need to recover a biblical orientation to the world that leads us to ache for God to manifest his righteous rule on the earth with nothing left to contradict it. That is his mission in the world, and it's how we should pray. It's how we should pray. When we move on then to the next three petitions, the focus is on how things currently are on earth with the hopes that they will be infused with the reality of how things are in heaven. There are challenges, of course. Just open your eyes, you see them, you know it. There are challenges that we face on earth as we seek to live our lives on God's mission. So the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, surely is about what you think it means. It's about God supplying our material needs. You gotta live you got to eat. you got needs that need to... If I've got a role to play, God, in your world, on your mission, then I've got to have my needs met. Yes, the fourth petition is about that. Here's the problem, if that's all you're thinking. The adjective modifying the word bread is found nowhere, nowhere else, not just in the Bible, but in all of Greek literature... It's an unknown word. So what does it mean? Does it mean daily? It's not known in all Greek literature prior to the Lord's Prayer and then only after that in places influenced by the Lord's Prayer. So commentators for 2,000 years have struggled to understand what this word that we know as daily bread, and, and by the way, Translators of the Bible have a problem here because the Lord's Prayer is so known, so familiar, that if you translate it a different way, it almost just, well, it's the confusion we have when we try to recite the Lord's Prayer together, right? We start, there's parts where we have different ways of doing it. So most English versions just keep the tradition and say daily bread. But most commentators today understand the word, the adjective here, translated daily, not as daily, but for the following day. And they translate it this way, or they understand it this way, because they notice the, the, the story of the manna in Exodus 16 appears to be the closest parallel to what the Lord's Prayer is referring to here. Think of, you remember the story. We don't have time to look at this, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm counting on you that you're reading your Bible and you know these stories. Um, What was the manna? What was this provision of bread in the wilderness? 
It was bread in advance. Bread from the future. (laughs) Manna, of course, was not just your typical bread. In fact, the Hebrew word mana means, what is it? They went around and said, we've not seen anything like this before. It's bread. You could eat it. It kept you alive. It was bread. Yes, real bread. Just not your typical bread. And when you find Jesus of Nazareth sitting down and eating bread with people, it wasn't just eating bread. Things begin to happen when Jesus breaks bread. With Jesus, every meal becomes a salvation meal, an anticipation of the final feast. By the way, that's why, that's why simple practices like showing hospitality are filled with spiritual significance in the Bible. Why? Because when you sit down and eat a meal with someone, it is a small but glorious picture of a day when everyone will sit and eat in peace. So we pray that even in the mundane realities of eating a meal with others, there will be an encounter with bread from the future, an encounter with Christ. There will be a satisfaction that comes more from encountering Jesus than even the food that we taste and we consume. That'll change your meals, won't it? Notice the fifth petition, forgive us our debts. This one also does not stand alone in just simply some sort of vertical dimension. It's requested in line with how the prayer has already extended forgiveness to those who are indebted to them. Again, notice the connection. Do you see it? Between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. The request is that God's radical forgiving grace, the grace that we so desperately need and trust in and cherish that God has poured out upon us, that this same radical grace would be infused into our relationships with others. Then the request of verse 13, the sixth request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, doesn't imply that God might tempt you to do evil. No. The danger here is that the cross-shaped way that we are called to live as followers of a cross-carrying Savior provides the evil one with ample opportunity to tempt you to deny your Lord. As 1 Corinthians 10 explains, we, have, we are the new Exodus generation. So what's the danger for those who have been released from Egypt, released from slavery, on the way to the fullness of God's new creation realities? What's the danger? You remember the story? You're reading your Bible, right? What happens in the wilderness? They are tempted They are tempted to deny the Lord. Let's go back to Egypt. Things were better there. We're done with this following Moses stuff. We have already been delivered from slavery. We're the new Exodus generation. But we've not yet arrived in the promised land, in the fullness 
of God's coming new creation. What can take us down now is not Pharaoh and his hordes. What can take us down now is not anything that could come at us. If we lose political power and privilege, that's no threat. If we lose our homes and our possessions, there's no risk. Even if we lose our lives, we have the power in Christ to take them up again in resurrection. The only thing that threatens us is if we turn away from our only hope found in Christ and turn to worthless idols. So please, Lord, do not let that happen. Do not let us become dissatisfied with your grace and your salvation. Do not let the pressures of living in the time between the times cause us to turn to some dumb idol to save us. Now, you notice that at the end of Matthew's telling of the Lord's Prayer, there's this strange little commentary that goes back to the fifth petition. And what is happening here, I think, is once again, the Lord's Prayer is doing something else. It is telling us about God's expectations for us, the kind of people that praying the Lord's Prayer will shape and form us into. Again, verses 14 to 15 take us back to the fifth petition and show us that Jesus is really serious about this heaven and earth connection. You and I aren't. Jesus is. He wants us to get this. He expects his people that he has saved by his grace, rescued out of Egypt, brought into freedom. He expects us to, imagine this, be his people. He he expects us to reflect kingdom realities, virtues. This is what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. Be whole, be complete, be virtuous as God is virtuous. I expect this of you people. This is who you are. This is the power you've been given by my Holy Spirit. I have this expectation. And so here's what he says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Don't do what everybody wants to do here and try to reason your way out of that very plain instruction. Forgiveness of others is required or you will not be forgiven. No amens. You want to sit and think on it for a minute? If you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven and you will be left outside the kingdom of God. It does not matter if you've been in church your whole life. It does not matter the conversion experience that you say you had. 
It does not matter what else you might say or claim to believe. Withhold forgiveness from others and forgiveness will be withheld from you. That was the easiest thing to preach because it could not be more clear than verses 14 and 15 said. But you're still raising your eyebrows saying, this doesn't seem to fit with what I've always believed. You're, mean, you're telling me, Ben, this is why you didn't say amen. You're telling me that I, the forgiveness of God has to be earned? Something's not right here. Yeah, brother, you're so right. This is my next line. There is no earning here except earning a debt. You want to know where there's earning? You can earn lots of debt. You do it all the time, piling it up. What does it take to eliminate a debt? It takes forgiveness, not earning. So you have to earn my forgiveness? Your category mistake here. What it takes to have the debt resolved is forgiveness. And that is true with God as much as it is true in our relationships with one another. It's not that, the, it's not that forgiveness with God is conditional. One commentary says it this way. It's reciprocal. There's a heaven and earth connection. If we are God's people, Our righteousness cannot be left to external obedience, appearance, or even our claim. The person who refuses to forgive another cannot be serious about desiring the forgiveness of God and the realities of his kingdom. Get this point and you will be driven to the Lord's prayer. How could you not be? You think forgiveness is easy? That's why you didn't say amen, because you have a relationship with someone, and you're thinking, whoa. You think forgiveness doesn't come at a cost? You think you can forgive without him? So if you need to forgive someone, you need the Lord's Prayer. You need to pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. My advice to you is that you actually say those words. I think that's apparently Jesus' advice. Rather than praying like the pagans, Jesus says, did you see it? Pray then like this. Uh, By the way, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is even more explicit. And when you pray... Say, our Father in heaven. For this morning, when was the last time you said the Lord's Prayer? It's a rhetorical question. The Lord's Prayer is supposed to be our template. It's supposed to be our shape. It's the form that our prayers ought to take. And for 2,000 years... Christians of all traditions have recited the prayer and have been shaped by it. To be sure, no one is wanting us to fall into some sort of dead formalism 
And one could mindlessly recite the Lord's Prayer just like they can do any other religious act. Side note, I don't know how many times conversations about how often should you take the Lord's Supper go like this. If you do it every week, you just get used to it. Yeah, that can happen. Pray the Lord's Prayer every day. You can just get used to it. Yep, that can happen. (laughs) But most Christians I know still find prayer to be one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines of them all. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to do it. So here's what you do. When you pray, say, our Father in heaven. You got it? The great reformer Martin Luther gave the same advice. Here's what he said. He wrote a little book called How to Pray. He wrote it to his barber. He's getting his hair cut. His barber said, how do you pray? So he went home and he wrote it out, gave it to him. We've got it. And here's what he says. Pray through the whole prayer, word for word, then repeat one part or as much as you wish. It, 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 it build on it, essentially. But start by just saying it. So that's my advice to you. It's no shame if you say, I struggle to pray. So did the disciples. So do all of us. You learn to pray over a lifetime, and the Lord's prayer is meant to be your guide. Hey, one last thing before we're done. One of the very first observations that you can make about the Lord's prayer is that it reflects the same communal emphasis that we find all throughout Scripture. The prayer begins with what? Our Father, not my Father, signaling that it is appropriate to pray and to learn to pray together. As William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas have written, There may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around in the recesses of your psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. Yes, the Lord's Prayer is meant to be the distinctive prayer for the followers of Jesus. Let us be heard saying it often. It will help us to know who God truly is. It will keep us rooted to his mission in the world, and it will shape us into the kind of people he expects us to be as citizens of his kingdom. So take your Bibles again and stand with me if you are able to. And let's say it. Now, we're going to have to have some way of doing this, right? So Pastor Jod did this earlier and I thought, okay, I'm glad this happened because I need to remind us all a couple things. We're going to do it the way it is in ESV. So it's debts and debtors, not trespasses and trespassed against us, so sorry if that ruins your tradition. This is how we're going to do it. Um, we're just going to do it the way the ESV has it here. So I, I, I think, I, I like to pray you're the evil one instead of evil, but we'll just 
We'll stick with this for now, all right? And then the ESV doesn't have the words that you knew to say after that. The traditional ending to the Lord's Prayer is almost assuredly not original to Matthew or Luke's gospel. So there's a textual variant. That's why the King James has it. Just This is more than you... It's a good way to end the prayer. It's tradition to do it that way. So we will do it just like you knew to do it earlier, okay? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All right. So as our Lord taught us to pray, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.